0: I now have the pleasure of introducing today's moderator who will introduce our distinguished speaker. Professor Peter Cassarella is a professor of theology at Duke Divinity School. He has served as president of the American Kuzanis Society, Actus, our co-sponsors today, the Academy and the Academy of Catholic Theologians. He has authored and edited several books and you can find a link within the chat to find see a fuller bio um, but more importantly, he is a longtime friend and collaborator of the Institute and is a key partner in organizing this entire series. Peter, I'd invite you to unmute yourself and turn on your screen.
1: Buenas noches. Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. It's a great privilege to be able to frame, offer a framework for our Hispanic lecture series. As Michael indicated, I've been involved for actually 21 years since January, 1999 with the Lumen Christi Institute when I helped, I offered a hand in organizing a a dialogue between Professor David Tracy and the new Archbishop of Chicago, uh, Francis George. And there's been a living dialogue ever since. I wanted to emphasize from the beginning that this is neither the first nor the last event that Lumen Christi will sponsor on Latinx theology and the Hispanic presence in the US Catholic Church. What we have though in this lecture series is something genuinely new. New because as was already mentioned with regard to next week's speaker, we're also looking at the Latino contribution of Pope Francis. New because we're thinking about God in the city. New because we're thinking about Hispanic youth. New because we're thinking about, if you will, the Hispanic analogical imagination. So I wanna thank all of you for being here tonight and I'm very excited to be able to introduce tonight's speaker. Our speaker tonight is a fellow Colombiano, un autentico Bogotano, a fellow Colombian, and someone from a city we both hold very dear, Santa Fe de Bogotá, and a New Englander. Dr. Josman Ospino is Associate Professor of Hispanic Ministry and Religious Education at the Boston College School of Theology and Ministry, where he also chairs the Department of Religious Education and Pastoral Ministry. He has many very distinguished roles, but in general, what I'd like to emphasize is that Dr. Espino has been a leader, a leader at the intersection between religious education, catechetics, Latinx theology, and engagement with the U.S. Catholic Church and beyond. He was a leader in the team that prepared and that continues to work on the Quinto Encuentro, He's been a leader in the areas of Latino participation, the Latino presence in the Catholic schools. And he's the current president of the Academy of Catholic Hispanic Theologians in the U.S. It would take me this full hour to run through even the major publications on Dr. Ospino's CV. But let me mention for you three or four of the publications that are coming out in 2021 with Teresa O'Keefe. He's edited together along the way. Conversations inspired by the directory for catechesis. With Javier Diaz Tejo and Abimer Olivera, he's edited Catechesis for a New Normal, Provocations with Convivium. With Dr. Timothy Matovina Reflexiones, Hispanic Ministry, Paulus Press 2021. And he's also co-principal investigator with Melody Wittenbach of Cultivating Talent, the National Study for examining pathways to increase increase the presence of Hispanic teachers and leaders in Catholic schools. But the highest praise and endorsement that I can give you, especially with regards to the, the presentation we're going to hear tonight, is that when I was teaching, when I had the privilege of teaching the Hispanic permanent deacons in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, I presented the deacons and their wives with a short summary of what Dr. Espino has Presented before on teaching Catholic doctrine and Espanol, our topic for tonight. And not only did the deacons respond very enthusiastically and immediately engage in a lively dialogue about how this short summary applied to their lives and their work, but the wives got very excited, engaged in our discussion. So, Desde el Pueblo, from the people, I present to you Dr. Hoffman Ospino.
2: Thank you very much, uh, Peter. And thank you, everyone. Uh, uh, I wanna express my gratitude to all the leaders and the people working at the Lumen Christi Institute and for this uh, particular invitation to be part of this uh, series. No, uh, Tonight we will engage in some uh, dialogue uh, about the, this idea of teaching Catholic doctrine in uh, Espanol. And what I wanna do is uh, you know, spend some time with uh, uh, all of you reflecting about this dynamic from two perspectives. You know, the first part, you know, I'm gonna divide my presentation in two moments. And the first part, you know, we'll look at what I wanna call theological and uh, pedagogical presuppositions. You know? So when we say that we will engage Hispanics, Latinos, Latinas in a process of faith formation and or theological education. So what is it exactly that we need to keep in mind as we draw from the experience of this particular community, but also find the best ways, the best possible ways to connect with the sensibilities, both religious, and also, pedagogical sensibilities of, uh, of this community. Then, uh, Peter and I will take up a, a few questions, you know, and we'll let you know when you can start submitting your, your questions. And after that, then I will go into the second part of the presentation, in which we will be looking at some practicalities as to how to do this, you know, where do we begin? How do we do it? And, you no, know, definitely not magic formulas, but. These will be pointers for all of us to do a much better job in terms of um, of how we actually share the faith, how we teach doctrine, how we theologize together uh, in Espanol in Spanish, you no, know, and which we we will use as a as a metaphor. So let's begin with uh, the first part, you know, some theological and pedagogical presuppositions that we need to keep in mind, you no. Know, Drawing from the experience of the Hispanic Catholic uh, community, but also uh, I think that these are experiences that we draw as Catholics in general. You know, uh, these are experiences that we don't have. You know, that are not exclusive to the uh, Latino Latina Hispanic experience, but we know that they are very important. The first thing that we need to say is that Christianity is a relational experience. You no, know? so we enter in a relationship. Being a Christian is ultimately an experience about entering into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And what a beautiful moment for us to begin this reflection, you Now that we are doing this during the season of Easter. You know, we celebrate the resurrection, we celebrate the risen Lord, And we celebrate the gift of life, life in history within the context of history, but also life eternal. So what's religion education then or faith formation or what's what's teaching theology about when we place it in this particular context? So ultimately it is about creating the conditions, creating the possibilities for women and men to enter in a relationship with Christ. Why do I say this to begin this conversation? Because sometimes when we think about catechesis or theological education, we have inherited models, you no, know, pedagogical models, catechetical models that are overly reliant on conceptualization, the conceptualization of the faith. We are constantly drawn into models that lead to raw memorization, for instance, or models of theological education that engage into philosophical, systematic analysis, yet fail to connect people or place people in relationship with God through Christ, if people placing people in relationship with one another. So if there is anything that we wanna learn from this initial set of uh, thoughts and from this first part is that the model of theological education and the model of of, uh, faith formation that emerges largely from the Hispanic Catholic experience is one that is profoundly relational. This doesn't mean that we do not pay attention to conceptualization that we do not pay attention to how the faith makes sense. It does, and we do. Yet, making sense of the faith does not preclude that we engage in the important, you know, uh, discussion about how we enter in relationship with God and, and with others. Religious educators, then, we need, to, uh, we, uh, we need to ask the question you know, as religious educators, as theologians, as theological educators, how do the people we teach make meaning about themselves, God, the world, and reality? How do people we teach make meaning about themselves, God, the world, and reality? That is a profoundly relational question. That is the question that is at the heart of every theological education process and at the heart of every process of faith formation. So we are gonna look at uh, uh, what, what I wanna call five uh, core dynamics you now that will help, us, uh, to, will help us analyze this. So, these core five dynamics, I'm gonna place them here just for, for your uh, uh, observation, and then we'll go back to the regular presentation. One, we're gonna look at the, co- the reality of historical uh, situatedness. Two, shared horizons of interpretation. Three, hermeneutical capacity, reading, interpreting, and understanding our faith tradition in Espanol. Four, agency to define our lives in the world and in lo cotidiano, and finally, cultural existence. I believe that these five dynamics are necessary for us to keep in mind how we share faith in the the everyday. How How do we enter into dialogue with others who want to know more about who God is, but not only to know more about who God is, but enter in a relationship with God. The first historical or the first dynamic that we need to keep in mind as we enter into this process of faith formation is understanding that we all are historically situated. Every one of us exists in the here and now of our reality. Therefore, catechesis, theological education cannot be oblivious to the historical conditions that shape our lives. We live particularly in the second uh, decade of of the 21st century. We are in the third millennium. This is the time in which we are disciples of Jesus Christ. And this is a time that everything that surrounds us historically makes no part, needs to be engaged as part of our faith formation. Faith formation or theological education that claims historical neutrality ultimately ends up being sterile. It ends up being historical, uh, uh, r- religious education or theological education that does not take seriously our lives in the here and now. Later on, we're gonna bring all these dynamics into the more particular uh, realities of the Hispanic community in the, in the United States. But let me say something about this for now. When doing Hispanic uh, catechesis, or theological education with the Hispanic Catholic community, it is important to understand the many ways in which Hispanics have become part of our society and the church in the United States of America. Some of you who know some of the work that I do understand that I, I love statistics and I love to look at history through the numbers. We need to understand first that Right now, in the United States of America, about 45% of all Catholics self-identify as Hispanic. So we're not talking about a small group of people here and there that perhaps in a corner in Chicago or uh, in Houston or Los Angeles or Miami or New York, you know, form communities and not do it in a quiet way. We're talking about almost about half of the church and the Catholic experience in the United States of America. At the same time, we know that about 60% of all Catholics in the United States of America uh, under the age of 18 self self-identify as a Hispanic. What does that mean? This means that when we speak about faith formation from a Catholic perspective in the context of the United States of America, the history of the Hispanic community is ultimately the history that is shaping the present and the future of Catholicism in the United States. So this historical situatedness, not dynamic as we enter into faith education, invites us to pay attention, for instance, to how Mexican Americans became part of the United States in 1848 when uh the united states of america you know annexes about half of the mexican territory it is an invitation to look at how puerto ricans become part of the united states of america in 1898 No, as the hispanic american war you know takes place the united states wins and then winner takes the spoils and puerto rico becomes an annexed territory in, the, in, in this country. Learning about how Cubans became part of the United States of America after the, uh, re- the Cuban revolution in the late 1950s. It is about learning the various historical processes in Central America, civil wars, poverty, hunger, violence, lack of opportunities, And something similar has been happening in in South America. All these historical dynamics have led millions of Latin Americans throughout the 20th century and early 21st century to make the United States our home. It is estimated that about 30 million Hispanics or Latin Americans and Latinos, Latinas from the Spanish speaking Caribbean have made the United States our home in the last century and and so, not about century and 20 years. So now we have settled in this reality. And in this reality, through the many circumstances that have brought us together, then we are forming our families. We're shaping a new society and a new church. Two thirds of Hispanics are US born. We know that the future of Catholicism in the United States of America will depend very much on how we engage the children of that generation, children and grandchildren of that generation of immigrants and those who have made the United States of America their land, their home in the last uh, number of decades. That historical situatedness, how we got here how we are shaping society and how our society and church are reacting to where we are, are core to the way in which we theologize and the way we teach our faith. A catechesis that ignores colonialism, a catechesis that ignores immigration processes, catechesis that ignores the political dynamics in Central and South America, is a catechesis that under the guise of neutrality fails to engage people when we engage people no in 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 faith formation or theological education we need we we are people don't stop being who they are people don't leave their memories behind people don't stop being no though the women and men whose realities have been shaken up by all all these realities. They bring them with them and we have an obligation to take them seriously in the catechetical processes. Two, the second dynamic that I wanna highlight briefly is the coexistence of several horizons of interpretation. Why do I say this in the context of the Hispanic community? Because there is a temptation when we do religious education, when we theologize and teach uh, theology or do theological education with Latinos to homogenize the Hispanic community. There is either the temptation to think that all Hispanics no, are Spanish speaking or English speaking or all are immigrant or, or, or all are Mexican or all have uh, a particular way of life. There are commonalities without a doubt But the first thing, but but what's key to understand that when we are engaged in processes of faith formation and in process of theological reflection, to speak of the Hispanic community is to speak of a multi-voice or uh, multi-level reality, no, a pluralistic, a pluricultural reality. There are Latinos, who are English speaking? Others who are Spanish speaking. There are others who speak. Uh, there are others who speak Spanglish. There are others who do not speak English or Spanish, as it's as is particularly the case of the indigenous uh, women and men who come from Latin America and whose first language is not Spanish. And when they are in the United States, they have not learned English. There are Hispanics who are Caribbean. There are Hispanics who are Central American, South American. Most, as we said, are born in the United States of America. Uh, We know that there are Hispanics who are uh, white. There are Hispanics who are black. As as a matter of fact, about 25%, or no, close to 25% of Hispanics in the United States of America are black, no? Which is a, a reality that sometimes we don't pay attention and uh, to pay attention to. And we know that there are Hispanics who again, are indigenous. We know that there are Hispanics who are poor. There are Hispanics who are wealthy. We know about the emerging middle upper class in the Hispanic community. About a third of Hispanics in the United States of America are entering quickly into this ascending you know, way of being uh, Latino Hispanic in the, in the United States. Why is this all important? Because every positioning, you know, whether it's racial, cultural, linguistic, social, etc., you know, provides a hor- horizon of understanding of reality which should not always be subsumed. Yes, we can find commonalities, but there is no reason for us to engage in, in processes of faith formation that simply homogenize or minimize differences. In the process of faith formation of teaching doctrine in Espanol, no, differences matter and differences are important and they have a lot of value and a lot to teach. Three, speaking of, uh, of faith formation in the process of, me- of men- uh, making meaning, we need to understand also that every human being by being created in God's image and likeness, by being intelligent, by being good, by exercising you know, our ability to read reality ca- has a hermeneutical capacity. In other words, we all are able to read reality in light of the circumstances in which we live and the conditions that have shaped our lives. Metaphorically, we can speak about Latinos, Latinas in the United States of America, reading our faith tradition in Espanol. This is a metaphor or a category coined by Methodist uh, theologian, Justo Gonzalez, Cuban American, who has invited, invited us to see What are the particular ways in which Latinos, Latinas, in the United States of America read the Bible? How do we worship together? How do we read read the, the different documents of the tradition? How do we engage the understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what it means to be church? How do we understand salvation? Now. It is not that this understanding of reading reality or this reading of reality in Espanol is exclusive to the Latino community. Yet, because of the many processes, those historical processes that we described earlier, they actually add something to how we read the scriptures. It is not the same to read the scriptures as a white person, born, raised in the United States of America in a middle class family going to a monolingual community. And another one to read the same scripture passage. Let's imagine the the passage of Exodus in which the people of Israel crosses the Red Sea and then reading it as an immigrant from Mexico fleeing poverty or violence or lack of opportunity and then arriving into a new nation where a new culture and a new reality needs to be understood. Those personal, historical, social dynamics are at the heart of how we interpret reality, how we read the tradition, how we we learn to engage uh, about God, and they need to be at the center of who we are as uh, as we educate in the faith. The fourth dynamic that I wanna present here is uh, agency to define our lives in the world and lo quotidiano. Rather than imagining models of education or faith formation that consider the Latino uh, or the Hispanic person as a passive recipient of doctrines or as a passive recipient of concepts that we No, share in the in the process of catechesis or theological education, the Hispanic person, no, the Hispanic Catholic person, the baptized person, no, rises as an agent, as an agent that enters in relationship with God and confronts, in light of that relationship with God, confronts reality, and as an agent, shapes reality. So we need to imagine models of faith formation and theological education in which the Hispanic person is not merely a recipient or someone who waits to see how others are forming church, building church, transforming society, experiencing salvation, but the Hispanic person enters into this conversation as someone who through his or her own life is doing so. How? By raising a family in a different culture, by speaking two or three different languages, an agent that challenges reality when that reality minimizes human dignity. But so as as someone who is able to live in the shadows of society and in the case of many people, for instance, people who are undocumented in the United States of America, who have to struggle every day, yet they manage to show us how to build family, how to build community. Millions of those people are the ones who are going to our churches and they are the ones who through their agency are showing us a new way of being church. And perhaps the most uh, basic uh, uh, principle or dynamic that I wanna highlight from this uh, uh, first part, you know, as we ask the question about making meaning, how do people make meaning? Is one that we all are familiar with, which is being uh, part of a cultured existence, you no, know, a cultural existence. So yes, we, we we look at the Hispanic reality as a cultural uh, uh, reality, as a cultural reality, or as a cultural dynamic, and this is key because we know that. None of us, no human being is cultureless. We all look at reality through symbols, through rituals, through concepts that are shaped by the culture in which, within which we exist. Culture definitely defines us, but it doesn't retain us completely, it doesn't, it doesn't it, it doesn't you know, preclude us from actually embracing other realities. Yet we all learned how to say mom, dad, God, faith, love in a particular language, in the context of a particular community. We all learned how to cook, how to eat within the context of a particular culture. We all learned how to be in relationship with one another in the context of a particular culture. We all learned how to do politics in the context of, the, of a particular culture. And all these dynamics shape the lives of people. And the more we are aware of these realities, the better and the more efficient our religious education programs, our theological education will be. So let me stop for a a moment. And I wanna invite Peter into the conversation for a a minute And, uh, and, before we go into the nitty gritty or the, or the how to do this, you no know, vis a vis catechesis, so uh, I wonder if uh, you no, know, Peter. So, what do you think of these thoughts? You know, based in, in your in your own work as a, as a, as a theologian, and, and what what are we hearing from the, in the questions? If there's anybody who's asking any questions.
1: So, thank you, Dr. Sfino. Mil gracias, Osman. Uh, so, uh, first of all, I want to uh, underscore what you said at the beginning about how we end in relationship with the God of Jesus Christ, and that starting point is really key, but there's two questions uh, that that were posed to help you make the transition to the pragmatics, to the practical part. The first comes from Barb Bourne, who asks, today we see many apostolates that were primarily English-based resources run by white males, and they provided catechetical formation, she says, in over 50 dioceses not reflecting Hispanic cultural and historic paradigms in the catechetical process. So the first question is how do you respond to this very interesting comment from Barb Horn. The second question would be, because I sometimes get the response in pastoral settings, even from pastoral agents who seem well-meaning, but the kids speak English and it's not pure and Espanol in the family. It's really more Spanglish. How do you respond to that? So those are my two questions. Uh
2: Well, that that should keep us busy though know, for for a few minutes. So here we have, uh, yes, I mean uh, the truth is that even though Hispanics have been in the United States of America for more than five hundred years, at least in the U.S. territory, you know, for some reason our dioceses, many of our dioceses and parishes seem to be discovering the Hispanic experience and be surprised you know, that now we have to imagine ways of doing catechesis or doing theological education in you know, engaging uh, a different language or engaging different, different categories. And then we retort to uh, translations or I, I think that perhaps the, 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 the most uh, questionable approach, pedagogical approach that I have seen in catechesis, which is the the one that Barb has just highlighted, is uh, the understanding that, you know, the only English approach to faith formation or even theological education. And this only English approach, this only English approach is both literal on the one hand, but on the other is also metaphorical, you know, is literal in the sense that there are many religious educators. There are many religious educators that in failing or in falling short you know, to understand the complexities of being Hispanic in the United States of America. And as I said, you know, this is not just about speaking Spanish, although it includes that. But it's also understanding the historical realities the socioeconomic dynamics that shape our lives, the locations where we live. I mean, we cannot ignore the fact that most Hispanics do not live in the wealthy uh, suburbs of our different states, you know, whether it's Illinois or Massachusetts or New York or uh, Nevada or something. You know, most, of his, most Hispanics are living in large cities and urban settings. You know, many of them live in barrios. Many of them live in these neighborhoods where that are, that have become enclaves of Hispanic uh, of Hispanic culture. And life in those particular enclaves, you know, is much different compared to the life of you no know, the small towns where many of the, our Catholic churches and Catholic schools uh, and Catholic schools are. So when we fail to understand the nuances. You know, of the Hispanic Catholic experience, particularly in the f- nearly 4,500 Catholic parishes in the United States of America that are serving Hispanic Catholics, primarily in Spanish, or, although also in English and in Spanish, you know, we, we must say. Now, then we, w- we will not be able to imagine a different way of doing catechesis. How do we you know, solve this? You know? and, and, and the best advice to me is I mean, that, that, I, that I can uh, offer in this particular case is uh, we, we need interculturally competent ministers, interculturally competent religious, uh, religious educators. We need interculturally competent theologians. No? And these are theologians who on the one hand take the time, religious educators who take the time to understand the language, who take the time to imagine ways to incorporate the different dynamics and experiences of the Latin, La- Latina, Latino community, and then bring them, turn them into curriculum or part of, uh, of the curriculum. There are many leaders in the Hispanic community who could be doing this, but very often we fail to invite them to take leadership. We don't allow them to do this. Same thing happens in universities, in Catholic seminaries, you know, when we do not engage the Hispanic experience uh, appropriately or prepare the next generation of clergy or lay ecclesial ministers or vowed women, religious, and men Know, to work appropriately with the Hispanic community because we don't know how to do that. And we don't invite Hispanic leaders who actually can do this for us or prepare them to, in, in order to do that. So I think that one of the entry points here you know, is inviting leaders. You know, this is not gonna happen overnight. We've been doing this for, 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 um, for many decades. And many of the projects, you know, are not, of the processes that we have engaged, are not working. But I will get to this particular point you know, in, in, in the second part of my presentation, and I will provide more, more details. And maybe that second question, Peter, that you asked you know, about language, I think is a, is a good way for us to, or a segue to go into the second part of, uh, of the presentation. And what I want to do in this uh, second part of the presentation uh, you know, of, um, of, uh, about, you know, as we speak about or reflect about teaching you know, doctrine and Espanol you know, is we need to look at the different dynamics that take place that go on you know, in, in the process of faith formation and theological uh, education. So before I say something about language, No, we need to first ask one important question. No, where does religious education happen? Most of the time for Latinos, Latinas or Latino, Latina Catholics in the United States of America. Let me just give you a statistical uh, overview and that will help us to understand where I will be going uh, in terms of cases. On the one hand, we know for a fact that only 4% of uh, uh, school age Hispanic Catholic children in the United States of America attend a Catholic school. That's about 320,000 plus uh, children, 4%. We also know that about 10% of Hispanic Catholic children are enrolled in the, religious education programs, or are enrolled in in some form of uh, catechesis. Only 10%, give or take, that's that's an estimate, okay? So we also know that uh, when we look at the uh, Hispanics who are enrolled in Catholic colleges and universities in the United States of America, the number is close to 120,000, give or take, no? So that's a fraction of the entire world of young women and men who are Hispanic and who are, who are Catholic. And if we are generous, we could say that about 5% of Hispanic young people in, uh, are engaged in youth ministry programs one way or another. No? So let's put all these numbers together and round them up. So from a hopeful perspective, We know that in the United States of America, give or take 20% of Hispanic children and youth and young adults are engaged in faith formation programs. Hispanics do not have a long tradition, unfortunately of adult faith formation, although that is growing. And I'm glad, particularly for the work of the institutes or institutos, pastorales nationwide. There are some that are independent and there are some that are uh, uh, attached to dioceses. A few actually work based on, on parishes, but we don't have a strong tradition of faith formation for, uh, or adu- for adult uh, faith formation. So what happens here is when we reduce religious education to what happens in the catechetical uh, context in the parish, or in the school, or in the youth ministry program, and when we reduce theological education primarily to what happens in the undergraduate or graduate program of uh, formation, you know, a the- theological program like Boston College or the University of Notre Dame or Barry University or a few others, then the problem is that we are reaching out. To less than a quarter of a, of the Catholic Hispanic Catholic population through faith formation, we are not reaching out, reaching out to the majority of people. So, what I think we need to do as we move forward, you know, and imagine or reinvent our understanding to faith formation and to theological education. And I'm bringing these two dynamics together because I think that they, 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 they are interrelated. We need to challenge, we need to question the schooling model that prevails in the United States of America for catechesis. Notice, well, I'm not saying getting rid of the schools or getting rid of what happens in classrooms, catechesis in classrooms or theological education in classrooms. What we need to do is definitely, I wanna see more Latinos, Latinas in Catholic schools. I wanna see many more of them in uh, faith formation programs, adult faith formation programs, theological programs at the undergraduate and graduate level, without a doubt. But the truth is that We cannot limit our pedagogical imagination merely to what happens in the classroom. So we are caught up in many of our dioceses and in many of our parishes nationwide with this, we're caught up in this schooling model. So when we cannot open a school or when we close a Catholic school, then we we lose creativity vis-a-vis where catechesis can happen or where theological education can happen. So the schooling model is important, but the schooling model can become a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it provides great benefits and great opportunities to grow in the faith. But on the other hand, it could be limiting and it can actually uh, reduce the, the possibilities for us to expand uh, our imagination. In looking at the Hispanic, uh, Catholic, uh, uh, the Hispanic Catholic community in the United States of America, I think you know, that uh, our pastoral leaders, and for this and, and the following remarks, I am grateful to many pastoral leaders that I have engaged in dialogue, the opportunities that I have had visiting dioceses and parishes nationwide, And learning from many of you you know, from many of the of the people that are doing this on the ground, you know, that there are four spaces, and I would want to call them liminal spaces that are key to the Hispanic Latino Latina experience of faith and theological formation. And these are four spaces that I want to call liminal. Let me just briefly explain, you know, how I am using the word liminal. Liminal, you know, in in, in a sense, you know, so points to the idea of being in between, to being in in a space in in between different realities, but it also points to the perspective of being on the margins, to being on, on the margins or using Pope Francis's category, being in the peripheries of certain realities. There are four realities that I think, you know, that are spaces, And even though they are not, they may not be physical spaces all the time, they definitely become ways of life within which Hispanic Catholics are making sense every day. I'll mention them. One, the home. Two, popular Catholicism. Three, la lucha, the struggle. And four, lo cotidiano the everyday or everyday experience. Briefly, the first space or liminal space that is core to the Latina, Latino, Hispanic experience in the United States where people are making meaning about their faith is the family. But more than, you know, we need to understand the family in a wide way yes we begin with the traditional family or the um the the way in which we as a a faith community understand family parents and children okay so when we we, we begin there but in the hispanic community not through an organic anthropology through a, through a, a way much bigger of understanding being in familia we also No, must pay attention to the role of grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, neighbors, compadres, padrinos, madrinas, and many others that become part of uh, of the life of uh, uh, of, of a young person or even uh, adult adult, uh, Hispanics. Why am I speaking about the family in this particular context as a liminal space and as a way to do catechesis. Because it is in the family, as we know, where we, we first learn the values of the faith, where we learn the culture, where we learn about God. And even though many parents may not be theologians, many parents, many adults may not be sophisticated in the way of learning or, or explaining what they believe and how they believe it. Parents pass on their faith to the next generation through practices by way of how they live their own lives. In the Hispanic community, the language, the Spanish language is completely imbued with catechetical pearls that I wanna call. For instance, si Dios quiere, que la Virgen lo bendiga, and many others of these these, uh, expressions. My Puerto, friend, Puerto Rican friends you know, use the expression "ay bendito," which is a beautiful expression. You know, sp- you no know, speaking referring to the the blessed reality, uh, the dimensions uh, of reality. So through language practices, how Latinos look at the sacredness of family and so on, that we discover a catechesis happening in the home that not all the time is actually spelling out, you know, the mystery of the Trinity or the Christological controversies and convictions that we may have, or the different uh, understandings of being church, yet they are actually cultivating faith. One of the challenges that we have in our religious education programs, particularly when we continue to push mostly the schooling model, is that we tend to disconnect what is happening in the home from what is happening uh, in the in the in the actual religious education program or the theological education uh, model. So we need to start imagining ways of not only affirming catechesis in the uh, in uh, uh, in the context of the home, but also imagining ways imagining ways of bringing the wisdom of what's happening in the home and the agents of catechesis and faith formation and theological reflection in the context of the home to bear upon the reality and the experience of the church beyond, beyond the actual context of the family. So that means that we need to pay more attention to women, that we need to pay more attention to abuelas, that we need to pay more attention to young people in the context of the home, that we need to pay more attention to the practices that people have in the context of family life and reimagine a catechesis that actually takes this as a basis rather than trying to impose other categories upon this and then eventually dilute their importance. Two, popular Catholicism. And on this one, many of you who may be listening to this, uh, to, to this presentation uh, may be more familiar with this conversation about popular Catholicism in the Latino, in the, in the Latino community. Uh, popular Catholicism is you not know, basically, according to Puebla is the language of the people. You know? It is the way in which people most of the time tend to make, an, uh, to make meaning about god and about who they are in relationship with god yes the liturgy remains the central dynamic the central experience of the baptized person No, ultimately we aim we look forward to participating to receiving the sacraments and to celebrating the liturgical celebrations particularly the eucharist as a community of baptized but if everything stays only in the, in the context of the liturgy, we need to start asking, what happens outside of the liturgy? And popular religion, popular Catholicism, in many ways fills in you know, or, or complements or advances, creates a space where we actually you know, see people bringing the beauty of what they have experienced in the liturgy and in their sacramental life into their everyday through practices. For instance, processions or devotions that people may have in their homes, altacitos, no small altars, or you know devotions to the saints, praying the Holy Rosary, or you no know, celebrations like quinceañera and a few others, blessings, no special prayers that people may have in the context of their home. All these expressions and these dynamics should be considered as Curriculum in processes of faith formation—they are happening already there. You know, when somebody lit, lit, lights up a candle in the context of the home, when somebody holds hand. One of the practices that I have with my family, for instance, is that we we eat together. We make the effort to eat together at least once a day. You know, during this time of pandemic, definitely we are eating almost every day together, but. We to eat together, and when we eat together, we hold hands, and we pray together, we say grace together. And that's an important important ritual that builds family, and it catechizes. It catechizes insofar as this curriculum invites us to remember that we are family, that God is important, that God is the source of what we have, and that God blesses us and that we should be mindful of the people in the world who do not have the blessings that we have. And the same happens with all the devotions, Our Lady of Guadalupe, Marian devotions that we have in our our Latino community, Uh, the the devotion to Our Lady of Divina Providencia or Nuestra Señora del Carmen or many other of of, of these traditions. We also have the various, um, the various texts that, and, and hymns that are constantly composed and sung, you know, in, a, in, a, in our uh, different communities. All these practices, you know, are sometimes ignored in religious education in theological, uh, in theological education. However, they are the bread and butter that sustain the faith of people every, you know, in the Hispanic community. Four, the struggle. I'm sorry, three. The struggle. I think that the struggle is a liminal space that we should not ignore. I'm not saying that all Latinos, Latinas are struggling in the same way, but there is a common. No, there are common realities that are uh, that, that shape the lives of many Hispanics in, in in our country that we need to keep in uh, keep in mind vis a vis how they 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 are struggling, how they they are going through their everyday lives. We know that in the United States of America, more than 20% of Hispanics live below the the poverty level. We know that Hispanics, there are about 9 million of Hispanics in the United States of America who live without the appropriate documents to find decent jobs, perhaps to go to school, to advance better lives. We know that millions upon millions of Hispanics in the United States of America are being exploited through uh, jobs where they get paid four, five, six hours, uh, $6 an hour, just as in the case of uh, people who are taking care of children or people who are working in the service industry or in the agricultural world. We know that uh, many Hispanics have been profoundly impacted by the pandemic as first responders, as people who did not have a chance to retreat into their homes and work from the safety of their homes. We know that many Hispanics are being bombarded every single day by misinformation regarding vaccination, regarding viruses, regarding healthcare. Millions of Hispanics still do not have access to healthcare in the United States of America. So all these dynamics compounded, you know, besides prejudice, besides racism, besides sexism that many of our Latinas experience in, uh, in, in our society and in our church, then all, all together generate a sense, uh, create a liminal space where suffering, where struggle, where being in la lucha is part of the every, uh, of the everyday life. But this doesn't go to waste it is out of that reality that we also encounter a new curriculum a new way of understanding who we are in relationship with god who we are in relationship with one another and how we build church and society and fourth lo cotidiano the everyday experience how we encounter god in, in the everyday how we encountered God in the way we cook, in the way we, we raise our children, in the way we do our work, in the way we study, in the way we decorate our homes, in the way we build community, and the way we form our, our, uh, our neighborhoods or in shape our neighborhoods. Lo Cotidiano be, takes the church from, out of, from, from a particular temple, or church or setting and expands it into the neighborhood. And I think that that's, that, that's a reality that again, we fail sometimes to integrate in, a, in our religious education programs and theological formation. So to conclude then three practical recommendations and here goes to the, the first, uh, the, the question that Peter asked uh, uh, earlier. The first recommendation is language matters in this particular context okay and language matter not only in terms of what's what we speak but also what are the categories that we privilege as we catechize and as we theologize language matters insofar as as long as we have women and men who are Roman Catholic in the United States of America? Who are primarily immigrants, and who are primarily who are immigrants and primarily Spanish speaking? We need to provide catechesis in Spanish. That's the, 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 that's a fact of life, but that doesn't mean that every form of religious education and doctrine needs to be in Spanish. No, there are many parents who sometimes ask, who sometimes ask. Uh, who sometimes ask uh, my child you know, wants to take religious education in English, but I want my child to, uh, to learn the faith in Spanish because I want to retain Spanish. And I mean, feel free to, to disagree with me. But I think that that is a losing propos- proposition for many families. No? May- if many of, of your children or young people are already learning their values, they are being influenced by popular culture, learning you know, their academic subjects in English and they wanna learn the faith in English, I think that we need religious education programs that actually teach you know, the faith in English yet with a Hispanic flavor. And this is where we need to do way more work. It is unconceivable these days, you know, it is almost unforgivable if I, if I may say that we have catechists today who are teaching primarily Hispanic children in schools or catechetical programs or even theological programs. And yet, even when they're doing in English, they fail to incorporate Hispanic culture, Hispanic traditions, and those socio-historical dynamics that we have been discussing in the last hour. So language matters. It could be Spanish or it could be English. Keep in mind that in the United States of America, about 20 to 25% of Hispanics do not speak uh, Spanish fluently, are mostly English speaking. And that number is gonna keep growing, growing you know, uh, throughout, throughout, uh, throughout the, the years. Most Hispanics in the United States of America are English speaking. And most Hispanics in the United States of America are Spanish speaking. So we have a de facto bilingual church in the United States. And if you add the experience of many of us who are raising children, we have to say that, no, we, we need to throw in Spanglish, you know, which is the fastest growing linguistic phenomenon that we have in the United States of America. So start ready to get Polish in your, your both your English and your Spanish in order to embrace the world of Spanglish. Second practical recommendation, we need, to pay attention to the practices, to the practices that exist already in the home, in popular Catholicism, in in la lucha, in contexts of struggle and lo cotidiano, so we can integrate them as part of the curriculum and theological formation in the Hispanic community. And finally, and this is something that we learned through the process of the fifth Encuentro of Hispanic Latino ministry in the United States, which was convoked by the Conference of Catholic Bishops of the United States of America. And the main meeting took place in 2018 is that we have an obligation. If we want to have Catholicism that is meaningful these days, Catholicism that is actually gonna connect with the reality of the Hispanic community, we must embrace the language, the realities, the questions and the concerns of Hispanic young people. Hispanics are a very young population. And if we do not engage the Hispanic young population, Catholicism in the United States of America is gonna become irrelevant. We are already heading in that particular direction. No, in the last few decades, we have lost approximately 16 million Hispanics, who were Roman Catholic, born and raised Roman Catholic, and the vast majority of them uh, made the decision not to self-identify with Catholicism prior to the age of 24. So we need to find ways to do catechesis and theological education that honors, embraces those questions, those concerns of young people. And when I say young people, I'm I'm talking about the majority of Hispanics because in the United States of America, the median age of Latinos Hispanics is 29. Two thirds of Hispanics in this country are younger than 40. So to speak of Hispanic ministry, to speak of teaching doctrine in Espanol, to speak of theological education in the context and from the perspective of the Hispanic community in the United States of America, means that we must engage young people. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Osman. Uh We've come so far and yet there's so far to go. I'm gonna start by recognizing Hector Varela-Rios. He had a question that others had too about mixed audiences, Hector.
0: Oh, well, thank you very much for, for allowing me to talk. Torospino uh, and uh, and Dr. Casarella, is my honor. Um, very glad to see uh, two Latinx faces in my computer. Uh, my question was about, uh, you know, in the first part of your talk, uh, you concentrated on the, on the Latinx community uh, and, and gave, you know, the dynamics that, that, uh, that frame the Latinx experience within the Catholic Church. And uh, I was left wondering, and I think you addressed a little bit of this in your second part. But it might be uh, it might be useful to talk a little bit more about it. Is what do we do in in hybrid environments where where Latinxs are not uh, you know of of uh, you know Latinxs even though that is a diverse term but when they're not the minor, my, majority in that context or 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 for or you have ex- uh, uh, you know different generations of Latinxs in the same congregation. And like you said, I mean, these, the younger generation doesn't speak Spanish very well. The older generation doesn't speak English very well. So what do you do in, a, in an educational context? I mean, it's very it's very hard to teach in Espanol, but it's going to be harder to teach bilingue, <laughs> right? So so, so that I was thinking about how, how, how that nuances what you were talking about, but thank you very much.
2: Sure, thank you, Hector. Uh, no, I think that you know I, I, I want to revert back to the uh, to the question to the answer that I offered uh, earlier. You know, we, we we need to move beyond models of theological education and faith formation that over rely on the one catechist who knows it all and does it all. You know, so it seems to me that, uh, and I want to give you an example. I was born in South America, when I was a child and when I was in in, in my uh, uh, younger years. No, not long ago, so. What, what happened is that most of my catechists, I have to say that 90% of my catechists were younger than maybe 25 years. So they, they were young people, they were children, teenagers, young people, young, no, uh, young adults who were my, my, my catechists. When I arrived in the United States of America, something interesting, I, you know, I observed something interesting that many of the catechists and most of the catechists in many parishes are people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, no? Now, nothing wrong with this. There's a lot of experience, there is a lot of energy, but we need to also keep in mind that uh, there is a lot of value for young people, for young people to teach the faith, to pass on the faith as young people to other young people. And this is something that, you know, that we need to work in a a much better way. In Latin America, there is the experience of Infancia Misionera, which is very popular in uh, in Brazil. It's very popular in uh, Colombia. It's very popular in Venezuela. It's very popular in Mexico. Infancia Misionera. this is children who are seven, eight, nine years old, teaching the faith to children who are Four, five, and six, which is fascinating. Children teaching the faith to other children, young people teaching the faith to other young people. This way we don't have a, a we don't have to worry that much about a catechist who perhaps don't, doesn't understand the language, or doesn't understand the culture, doesn't understand the nuances of a mixed reality, because you're absolutely right. You know, many of our communities are intergenerational, multilingual. And not only uh, 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 congregations, but also families, you know, multilingual, multigenerational, multi ideological. And sometimes we just cannot do it all. We cannot be all for all. Diversify your catechists and give uh, uh, as much uh, priority and protagonism to young people.
1: I'm going to summarize a couple of questions that came in on young people. Um, John Donaghy was writing from rural Honduras talking about the importance of popular Catholicism, but also like the digital, even in light of the digital divide, how communications technology creates new challenges. And then one anonymous comment also was about, is it, is it really more of a hard sell than you're acknowledging to, do, to, to promote religious devotions with the young people? And then Ramon Acasio also asked about the young people. Do they see a mixed record on preferential option for the poor? Anyway, those are some of the questions that came in on the young people.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the question of popular you know, religiosity uh, in the United States, I remember that some of our colleagues in, the, in theology, for instance, Orlando Spin, Virgilio Elizondo, uh Roberto Goizueta, you, Peter, have also written significantly about popular Catholicism, you know? And, and, and when I return to these works, you know, Popular Catholicism seems to be—I mean—to connect quite well with the experience of the immigrant population, definitely, you know, and the adult population. But we got—we have entered, particularly in the last 20, 25 years, last quarter of a century, in, you know, with a new generation of Latinos. The fastest growing you know, generation of uh, or, or, or group among Latinos are second and third generations, you know, and many of these young women and men are uh, not as fond uh, of popular religion as. Uh, as perhaps the immigrant population is. They don't go to processions. They don't don't have the same uh, passion for Marian devotions as perhaps the immigrants uh, may have. However, there are new ways in which these people are creating meaning and there are new devotions that are emerging in the context of uh, of 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 the young Hispanic community. And this is an area where researchers need to go and learn more. We, we haven't done our homework yet, you know, to learn, what is it, you know, how are young Latinos, Latinas? Christian Smith, you know, a sociologist from the University of Notre Dame, in his uh, national study on youth, uh, uh, on, uh, on youth people, you know, the this, this study that he's done uh, for, for almost two decades already, uh, he has observed that among all the groups of young, Catholics in the United States of America, the ones that are most prone to having uh, devotions, to still retain devotions, even though they were US born, even though they are mostly English speaking, and so on, are Hispanics, you know? And they and they keep that because of the connection with their families and because they they still associate that. But no, praying the rosary for a young person, uh, for, for a young person you who is born in the United States of America. No, may not be, have the same meaning and weight as someone who grew up doing that in Latin America. So we need to start exploring, uh, exploring these dynamics. And yes, on the question of, uh, of the digital uh, experience, you know, one, another world that is emerging and is changing really fast. Hispanics in the United States of America, young Hispanics spend more time in front of a screen than young people from any other cultural ethnic group in the United States of America. They are natural inhabitants of this digital world, you know, through social media, through what they consume you know, uh, uh, on, on screens, computers, phones, and, and so on, video games. And, uh, and again, so the question will be how present are we you know, engaging them there? not trying to evangelize or trying to transplant whatever we have in the church or catechetical program into social media, but how do we use that to help them ask the questions that we want them to ask as people in you know, young women and men who are entering a relationship with God. And the last question on the, on the preferential option uh, for the poor, based on what I've been reading and what I, and, and what I hear you know, about young people in the United States of America, Hispanics retain a very strong uh, interest and a very strong uh, concern for the preferential option for the poor. And it has to do largely because most of them are being born and are being raised in uh, in situations where poverty, lack of education, and lack of opportunity is the, the, uh, the bre- their everyday bread.
1: Okay, I wanna recognize Luis Carlos Ayala from LA, I had a series of questions uh would you like to pose particularly the one about the spanish-speaking priest i thought was interesting but would you like to pose one of your uh questions luis carlos
3: um sure um thank you very much um mr Casarello, professor Casarella, and uh professor espino thank you um for having this opportunity in terms of a discussion um it's overdue over um quite overdue in terms of having a presentation on this on theological issues um, like I mentioned in my email, on the q and I'm a product of elementary Catholic and high school, Catholic and high school education. And um, my question is the following. I've been privileged to, to attend masses in Spanish, in English, and also in two other foreign languages. But every time I go and I attend the Spanish language masses, there's something about the dynamics. I mean, we all believe in one God. Um, but there's something about the priest, the celebrant, that are very, once they give the homily or during the homily, they're very condescending. Um, I remember my my mother, uh, may she rest in peace, always saying, uh, we should always be respectful of the priest. And um, I would always tell her, Mom, um, the church of today is not the church of my grandparents. Uh, we, we, it's good to ask questions. It's good to question the sermon. And so when I would talk to the priest, he would, um, um, he would be nonchalant or very indifferent um, in terms of posing the questions, to answering the questions that I posed. Um, I'm there right now, I'm totally involved with the church um, as I've always been. I'm a catechist, I'm also a lector, and I've attended um, the Bible Institute here in Los Angeles. But I just cannot see how um, Spanish-speaking priests tend to be very condescending. And it's something perhaps seminari- seminaries need to retrain priests to say, you know, we're all, uh, we're, we are Corpus Christi. We are the body of Christ. And it's just something very different from my other uh, priest and the English-speaking priests, as well as the French-speaking priests, which tend to be at par with their faithful. Thank you.
2: Well, wow. thank you, Luis uh, Luis Carlos. You know what, uh, Peter? This should be perhaps the, the topic for for you know when when this series you know goes into the next uh, stage, because uh, I think that what Luis Carlos is uh, is uh, highlighting is a, is, a, is a reality that uh, very much affects many Hispanics uh, throughout uh, the United States. Two points on this, Luis Carlos. Uh, On the one hand, you're absolutely right. You know, uh, the way pastoral leaders, whether they are uh, priests or uh, ordained, or whether they are lay women and men vowed religious, address a community in many ways Reflects the, the the anthropological understanding that we have uh, of, of that community, and I have seen, I have also heard, you know, uh, not only priests and, and deacons preaching, but also teachers, you know, with that when they offer something to uh, the Euro American community or to English speaking, you know, Catholics or mostly English speaking Catholics, you know, uh, whether it's a reflection or a class they do a, I mean, they, they, they make an effort to do a, a sophisticated uh, presentation. And immediately when they have to do it in Spanish, they switch, the level goes, you know, five notches down. And the question is why? And I think that, you know, the, uh, the, the condescending attitude is something that unfortunately points to how Hispanics in many of our communities are being perceived. But this is not only of Hispanic uh, uh, priests, no. And I mean, I have seen clergy and lay leaders and, and others doing it at all different levels from, you know, people from from, from different communities. What can we do in order to to address uh, this dynamic? On the one hand, what we need to do is let's call them out. Let's call them out. I have done that personally. I have uh, spoken with. Uh, no friends of mine and people who are not even friends of mine. And I have said, you know what? I heard you say this in English and now you said this in Spanish, and we deserve better. We deserve better. And if that doesn't happen, I mean, that, that's one way of addressing trying to create a cultural change. But on the other hand, I think that we need to start, you no, know, I mean, in a sense, you know, creating alternative spaces for people to actually have these intelligent conversations, Bible study groups good adult education programs you no know? let's sit down and read a, and read a particular document but yes our people deserve the best you know and i'm going to give you one example uh, some par- some dioceses in the south of the united states of america in the 19 and in the early, late 90s and early 2000s struggled significantly when many immigrants from mexico particularly from the north from the northern part of mexico who were wealthy and highly educated came to um, to uh, the you know, southern texas california and they went to parishes you know uh, went to parishes then these people wanted homilies that would reflect perhaps their level of education their, you know, th- th- what they were doing in life and they were sent to parishes with hispanic ministry that we're doing quite well, but they noticed that. And they actually, you know, I have spoken with leaders who said, oh, actually, you no, know, these homilies, you know, are not even in Mexico. You you will hear this, this type of condescending you no know, homilies or this kind of type of condescending catechesis. So, yes, being Hispanic. You know doesn't mean that we have to minimize the level and the quality of what we are offering and perhaps let me just actually do a little bit of advertising this is why we are having these conversations precisely right here you know we are having high quality and the speakers that are that are being invited through the lumens Christi institute precisely not 10 you know are, are an exercise in addressing that uh, reality, that we need good uh, conversations and conversations that engage the mind, the heart, and who we are as Hispanics.
1: Okay, a last question, a two-part question about bilingualism. Andrea Leal asked whether the model of carquises en español might impede, like a bilingual family, bilingual children. But then from a different perspective, Sister Sonia asked about the need for bilingual catechistas and, and wanted to know if that's even a possibility.
2: Well, definitely. I mean, b- b- bilingual catechists are the, are, are the ideal bridges in a community. You know, I mean, that, that, there is no doubt. You know, we, we, we need to have more bilingual catechists. And, uh, and, and on this note about bilingual catechists, something that i recommend everywhere i go you know i hear it all the time i hear a lot of directors of religious education saying i'm having a hard time getting my 50 something 60 something you know year old catechist to learn spanish and teach catechises and my answer is why why are you going to put that burden on, on on someone no at that age to learn you know, to learn Spanish to catechize when you have hundreds, if not thousands of young people in the Hispanic community who are already bilingual and who can actually do this quite well, you know, please, for goodness sake, let's engage the Hispanic community already, particularly young people. They are the perfect, uh, the perfect bridges. Uh, and in terms of the first question, uh, the first question about uh, but uh, whether bilingualism may become an obstacle you no know, to uh, to learn the, uh, the, uh, to learn the faith or, or 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 even to keep the culture you know i think that we need to be pragmatic friends we need to be we, we need to be very pragmatic we know sociologically speaking that a young person a young his a young person and, and this is done with hispanics that a young hispanic person you know stays in a faith formation program or a youth ministry program, a maximum three or four years. That's all you have them. Now you will have them for three or four years, and that's it. Then this person will move on to college or start working, or they will just walk away from practicing their faith on a a regular basis. So what we need to start asking ourselves is, what can you do in the three or four years that you have these young women and men? This is like we as parents, you know, we have our children for 18 years, you know, so I'm not gonna pretend that, you know, when my children are 40 or 45, I'm gonna try to keep, you know, rearing them, although I can give them some good advice. But the question is, what can I do in those years when they are with me, when they are with us? So that's the question for the religious educators. And if we are overly concerned about keeping, the traditions and the culture and the language you know and then we forget that many of these young people are just asking for basic foundations of their faith and if they want to receive them in english then we find catechists who do it in english with hispanic flavor but if you wanna if if the if the young person or, or or the adult needs catechesis in spanish then go and train your catechists in Spanish. But we have to be, in this particular case, we need to start engaging many people and, ra- and rather than doing you know, the one size fits all, we need to have multiple catechesis or multiple expressions of you know, c- catechetical uh, formation programs.
1: I guess it's just all hands on deck.
2: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: I want to thank everybody for your patience. I'm sorry I didn't get to each and every question, but the dialogue was really lively. Please join me in thanking Dr. Hosman Espino for starting this new series in Hispanic theology in such a lovely and important and urgent way.
2: Thank you, thank you very much.